Well, hi everybody, welcome. It's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in La Condesa in a bar, restaurant. Como se llama? What's this called? Shell House. Okay. And I'm with a new friend, colleague, a very renowned artist, intellectual, professor, and also media executive, Luz Maria Sanchez. Como estas, Luz Maria? Fine, thank you. And we're going to do this in English, right? I think so, yeah. Great. So, would you tell us, please, what you're up to these days, what you're doing right now? I've just described you as having at least four jobs, which in some sense is quite quite common with Mexican intellectuals, right? Someone well, could be... Yeah, because you don't make an end with just one. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of people who have a full-time job, say, as a professor, who also have three other full-time jobs. Yes. I mean, it's amazing to me what you guys get up to. Well, uh, okay, but well, that has to do with the economical situation of our country, I think. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But anyway, yeah, I work in a TV station, Culture One, Canal 22, and I'm also I'm a teacher. Uh, or cultural management, or uh, you know, and then I'm an artist as well. Well, why don't we start with the artwork you're doing, and then go on to Channel 22 or Canal 22, and then go on to your professor. But let's see okay, where it takes you us. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with your artwork. I've been fortunate enough to have a little bit of exposure to your artwork, which has affected me very deeply. I'd love it if you would share with the listeners a bit about it. Just as background for you, the podcast is listened to in about 50 different countries each week. So for a lot of people, English isn't a first language. And for a lot of people, whatever I'm talking about with, with my guests is, is a bit maybe new to them because they could be in a part of the world that doesn't know about the context in which we're discussing this. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's good to... Gracias, uh, señor on the side of more context rather than less. Okay. So here we are in Mexico City and your artwork that I've seen and heard, because your artwork is both visual and oral, is both uh, very international in its scope and its reach and its mode, but is also very local in many of its points of reference. And so? Maybe you could tell us a bit about it. Well, I started working, I study music, so I start, work, I start working as a... Uh, with sounds when I... Uh, when I got this job in the radio, in the radio station, uh, university radio station in Guadalajara. And so from there, I, I tried to find a niche where I could work creatively uh, with sound. And then I met some people coming from, uh, from uh, Germany, from Berlin, from the Deutsche Welle, and they were actually doing some uh, uh, radio art workshops. And then I realized there was maybe this space in between media and art that I could really do something about it. So I started doing like, things that were like uh, time-based uh, artwork with just purely with sound and it appeared a lot like uh, music, like what they call electroacoustic music. And then I started going to more abstract uh, ways of dealing and, 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 and working with sound. Mm-hmm. And and then I realized, I mean, that's going to be a, a, a quick jump, but I realized that people when they're in museums, they need some visuals to stay a little longer. <laughs> and so I start working with visuals. I start putting elements that people will read or will see or will watch. Yeah. Even though my my master is in sound, I mean, I, I know how to work with sound, both professionally and in space, you know, a sculpture. 
and that's how I start uh, doing also visual stuff. And now, like when people say that I'm a sound artist, I will say no, I don't think sound art exists per se. It's like video art or. Well, I made that mistake the other day, and you ticked me off. I think your yeah. finger started wagging at me. Yeah. I had to be spoken to. Yeah, I'm not a, a sound <laughs> artist. I'm an artist that happens to work with sound or visuals or, uh, you know, uh, and so. What I do now is I work. I work with uh, found objects, with found objects within media. You know, I work with recordings, mm -hmm. things that uh, reporters, friend of mine, give me, things that I find in the on the internet, on the newspapers, and from there I go and, and, and build my my installations. Right, 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 right. Now. Is there a particular kind of found object that interests you, that you're tending to favor, or that your friends point out to you, or that you collect? What do you look for? Well, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really like a, maybe because I was trained in media, I've been, I work in radio since I was 15 years old, and now I'm doing television. Uh, each, each profession, uh, expect from you that you're going to be really into whatever's going on so when I was doing radio I just hear my radio station all the time now I'm on TV I watch my channel all the time I read the papers like maniac when I was doing my PhD in Barcelona I read all the papers available online much of them in Mexico that's how I keep also track of how media portrays in different ways what's going in the reality and so eventually I started I mean I go and record things from in the field you know I would go to the Rio Bravo or Rio Grande is the name of a river that is in between Mexico and the United States depending on the side you are in uh, and I go and I record uh, the soundscape and then with that I build the soundscape with uh, of the Rio Bravo which describing it will be like you listen to this bucolic soundscape with the water and dogs and birds and you know everything and somebody walking and and and, and every here and there you will listen to the sound uh, the sound of the sirens of the uh, of the border patrol which they're there watching all the people on the other side of the border the south side which is mexico and if they see people they're trying to jump in the water and and trying to cross around they just remind them that they're watching you know and so this i work with things that i go and record and find and then i work with things that i find already in media that's the two ways i approach my work but I don't do things. I don't ask people to reenact. Yeah. I don't ask people to, can you do this sound for me so I can use it? Right. I go and I find, sometimes like the sound is not necessarily the best quality. Like I did a, a sound installation uh, uh, that it was shown in, in Guadalajara, which is a very conservative city in Mexico. And then it was shown in Madrid just after the Pepe won the elections, which is becoming pretty conservative as well. And so this sound installation is a big wall, uh, like five by six meters, all red, with uh, 48 golden speakers, which I found that way. I mean, I didn't ask anybody to paint mm -hmm. the speakers. They were originally uh, golden. I, I found them in the center of Mexico City, downtown. And so the sound of the installation is six different uh, uh, monologues that the Cardinal of Guadalajara uh, speeches that he gave through the radio waves on uh, 2010 and the beginning of 2011. And you know, he's a pretty conservative guy, so he talked about you know his views of life. Basically, he said that we're in this world just to suffer, and generally people think that we came here to have fun, and, and so we are all wrong eventually, you know? And so, Original sin. Yeah. is his doctrine very much. Yeah. And so what you hear there is the voice of this guy that maybe it's not the pristine voice, it's not hi-fi. I mean, I didn't I didn't record it in a studio. I just got it from the radio, from the MA, uh, you know, really low-quality sound. And then I use that. I don't reenact that, and I don't ask an actor to read it or anything. It's just the voice of the cardinal saying whatever he said. 
maybe he sounds like a monster because of uh, recordings and everything, but that's that's his voice, you know. I, I didn't I didn't tweak it or anything. Right. So that's the way it works. Yeah. You think it's clear for? Yeah, I do. And I I think you showed me some images you took the other day that would be interesting adjuncts to the sounds of the Rio Bravo or Rio Grande, namely the the photographs of some of the clothes left behind by people crossing the border. Yeah. Uh, some of them drying after the swim. Yes. No? Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting yeah. example. When you were mentioning the fact that in museums or galleries or whatever, it's hard to hold people's attention with just sound, I was thinking about the intense embarrassment that I've sometimes found when teaching about radio to large groups of students who do not want to listen unless there's something happening visually as well. I've had enormous problems with that in the past and I more or less gave up because of it. I'm not talking about teaching radio production. I'm talking about listening to radio as an artifact of history and as an art. Immense difficulty getting people to buckle down to it. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent also with music. Again, not doing things from a musicological perspective. So. Yes, I appreciate what you're saying. I think the other thing is, of course, there's much more integration now of these things because so often radio stations are offering visuals. Um, for example, you know, they'll show you imagery of the recording that's going on, of the program that's going out, right? Or they'll give a graphic illustration of the radio, the sound waves. You know, it's going on within the industry itself as well. So we're in a visual culture, and so people's they have a hard time just to imagining things just purely with sound. But sound, in a sense, is even better than visuals, or to to uh, help you deal with reality, because at least sound has a three-dimensional aspect that visuals don't have. Sound you can hear it from behind, from front, mm -hmm. up and down. And sound, even if you don't hear anything that you recognize as sound, can even be just a shock of a wave. Oh, and it's a painting a picture often, isn't it? It actually can you give can, a better picture than a picture can. Do you do that as well? So, the two examples you gave us of your art, one was the sounds of this river crossing, the other was the sounds of this cardinal speaking, both have clear political implications. So tell us a little bit about how you see your role as an artist in relation to politics. Because this isn't just the decontextualized, happy, slappy, international life regard of something like abstract expressionism, or lots and lots of sound art for that matter. These two examples are very pointed. I think it has to do with, uh, I mean, as an artist, I mean, I have a, I have a, a bad training, and my bad training again is in media, and I, um, I have been lucky enough to be able to work always, all my life, in public media, which requires for you to be as objective as you can when you are in front of a microphone when you're organizing programming or, or, or deciding what, what's going to be produced, which is different than other kind of media that they actually, you know, look for people opinionating about everything, you know? So I learned that since, since I was, uh, even the tone of my voice in Spanish, sometimes they tell me, where are you from? Because even my Spanish, is, it, 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 I was trained as to have a non-accent Spanish, you know, like a proper, uh, so you can a see A voice it. from nowhere. Exactly, a voice will please whatever ear, you know, or will not pose, I mean, I don't know, we can go through that, but I think in my, and the things that I do as an artist, I, I bring that up as well, and I just give, since I'm a good listener, and I'm a good, I think so, I'm a good a person that observes, uh, what I do is just to share what I'm seeing in the best way I can share it, which is with not necessarily an opinion. Gracias, 
but is an intelligent, I, I hope so, an intelligent gaze to things. Uh, I mean, my artwork is not just a, 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 a second of, a, of something that I saw. It's something that I've been seeing every single day, repeatedly, and then I just register that, and then I just find a way of showing it. And persons in front of the artwork, what what they are watching or listening is something that is already, I don't know, it's like a, uh, I don't know how to explain that, but it will be more or less like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. All the tools that I learned through my life, uh, professionally and the media, I've been just trying to provide some kind of a vision and bring those elements into uh, a different space, which would be a museum, a gallery, a public space, a street, whatever. But there's an objectivity to the selection of found objects like the sounds of the border or the sounds of a cardinal. At the same time, the choice of the venues and the topics is very political. Yeah. I'm, but the presentation is not. And I'm thinking of, <coughs> pardon me, your artwork that I'm familiar with that had a big impression on me. No sé cómo se, I don't know how to say it, but do you call it 2487? 2487. This is a remarkable piece of work that people can see on your website. Well, there's a website by its own. On its own, www.diaspora2487.org Diaspora2487.org, which I think I visited and listened to, but there are also graphic representations. And again, I guess there's an objectivity to this, but there's also a remarkable phenomenological impact on the listener, as I experienced. That is part of how you've put together the objective record such that a point is made. So could you tell us a bit about that, this diaspora2487.org? Well, they had the, like two sides on that piece. I mean, for one is 2,487 names of people that died while trying to cross the border between Mexico and the United States. And um, there, there's the names of them, there's a, a little uh, uh, data sheet of each one of them, uh, if there was information available. And um, for once, I was trying just to work on the um, exodus that has been, well, now it's different, but uh, that has been happening between Mexico and the United States, all this influx of Mexicans trying to leave whatever's behind, including their own life, just to get to the other side of the border and try to make a living. That, well, has to do a lot with what the Mexican government is not doing. Uh, and now it's even worse, but anyway. Uh, and in the other side, I was trying to show or to represent uh, as, a, as, a, as an aesthetic experience mm. uh, all this data that was overwhelming. Yeah. I, just, I got this residency, I was supposed to work for three months in whatever theme I wanted. And so, but at the end of the residency, the residency during those three months, you should have a show, an exhibition, a piece. And so, it was not just a residency for do research. I had to do something. And so, I realized I just have a month and a half to do research. I got with this almost 3,000 names, uh, working with different databases from uh, ONGs working in the United States, and oh, also uh, ONG is. Um non-government organization that's the Spanish yeah. version of the acronym. Okay. And also in the United States, the government from Mexico never helped me at all. And so at the end, I just had a month and a half to get with all the project and then uh, another month and a half to produce a project. And so my, my main concern was how can I uh, convert all this data, this overwhelming again, into a uh, aesthetic experience, mm. and I realized I, I didn't know to work through sound, you know, images or whatever. And I realized that just by having the names being said, 
uh, in, a, in an organic pattern, and that's it, could just help to realize the volume of a problem, you know? So, those are the two things that I'm, you know. Yeah, it was incredibly powerful for me as a listener. And you're towards the end of another very big project that has big numbers of people in suffering. No? But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Even though you've just swallowed some citrus. <laughs> She's just had a found object that was had a very profound effect on her capacity to speak. <laughs> well, um, you mean the treatise? The piece that you just saw? Yes, the piece that I just saw. Well, that 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 piece deals with um, violence. It is um, this is in Mexico right now because of the war against uh, uh, drug uh, trafficking and all this um, uh, parallel economy and parallel government that is going on in Mexico right now. It's a pretty complex issue, and what I did is uh, I just I just start like uh, compiling all the images that came out in the news in two major newspapers from Mexico. One is Milenio, and the other one is Fornada. That they're available through the internet, and take any each one of those photos dealing with this theme and uh, intervening them. And putting them together as a, as a projection. So, at least until March, when I did the first cut and I presented it to uh, this art fair, Maco in Mexico City, we had already like 10,200 images. This project started on the on the uh, uh, 11th of December 2006. Uh, the images are taken from, and it's going to end on the 30th November 2012, which is when uh, the presidency of uh, Felipe Calderón is going to end. Um, and well, uh, I mean, you saw it as a big projection. Uh, the photographs are intervened with a really simple tool, and uh, and you may say better about the effect of the piece. I mean, so there are, you know, possibly 60,000 people have died uh, over this period when during this sexenio, which is the six-year presidency, it's a one-term presidency in Mexico of Calderón, uh, some would say as a consequence of his decision to announce this war on drugs, to utilize large amounts of money from the United States government as well as large amounts of money and resources from the Mexican government and people. Uh, to deal with what is essentially about, as you say, alternative economies and alternative governments being set up, shadow governments, not so shadowy in some instances, that run much of this country, dealing with the seemingly insatiable desire of United States consumers for drugs from Central America and Mexico, and the export, on the other hand, of appalling armaments from the United States to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And this, these treatments that you've done to these images are very striking to me because I'm not an expert art critic. One of the other things you can do that I can't do. But at one level, they problematize the realism of a news photograph because they blur images. There are even, there are some moments in the work um, and I only saw a fraction of the 10,000 images where it's not clear what's been treated. There are other moments when it's very clear. You see cars, you see bodies, you see arrested people, you see officials. You might not know what their provenance is, but you know what you're seeing more or less. There are other moments when you really can't tell what's being represented, what's been treated by you, even though you know the context. So what I found fascinating is that this disturbance, this disruption of the realism of the news photograph somehow or other brings to bear on the found object, as it were, a sense of the impossibility of really comprehending this phenomenon, the impossibility of dealing with it intellectually or emotionally, and the horror of the constancy of death and disfigurement and torture, such that you know, we're looking at a phenomenon that is, in human terms, 
greater than what the dictatorships in Chile or Argentina do, and is getting to the point where one returns to the classic Aristotelian dilemma of whether seeing violence inures you to it such that it no longer has an effect, is cathartic such that you feel better, or actually inspires you to take action. And that's, I guess, what it did for me, problematize the realism of the news photograph and bring to bear on me the impossibility of understanding this phenomenon. Well, I think you got it. I mean, any any kind of a any kind of a lecture could be good about that. You know, the, my 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 job as as an artist in this case is just putting it together and trying to really make the the aesthetic experience happen for somebody else instead of just knocking. Uh, you know, closing the door in, their, in, in your nose with really gross <laughs> images or right. things that are going to make you uh, make you uh, run away from the problem. Yeah. I mean, that happened with 2487. Uh, it's a piece that has been traveling a lot in the United States, and uh, and you can see that there's uh, there any any kind of a. Citizen in the United States, even if they're not Hispanics from Hispanic origin or Mexican origin, they can relate to that. They can relate to the diasporic phenomenon, you know. And, uh, but yeah, that's it. Everybody's touched by this violence somehow, aren't they? By the by the violence of the border, by the violence. Well, of the you know, I mean, I just can't. I just, I, I, I'm just back from my hometown, from Guadalajara, and uh, what I saw there. I mean, when you yeah. talk to your close family, is that well, you know, for the Mexican kind of character, uh, maybe it's gonna gross what I'm gonna say for people that are listening, I don't know where, the much advanced societies, but in Mexico, everything, even the death of your own father will make a joke in the first five minutes, you know? So people will be laughing at the funeral uh, house or whatever. So laughing about death and laughing about, I mean, being able, you know, to, to, to do that with your own problems and your own tragedies, I think helps remediate what is, is something that you can. And so uh, I, I, I went to Guadalajara just a couple of weeks ago and my family was already making jokes like, did you leave your car outside in the street? You, did you park your car outside? And you were like, yes, well, no, put it in. And you said, like, why? Are they going to steal my car? No, 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 they're going to drop a head, a head, a human head on top of it. So that's that's a, the, the level of the situation that is now. It's not just in the media. It's not, I was telling you about before, it's not just about a section in the, in the newspapers It doesn't exist anymore. The Nota Roja, the red, uh, whatever, you know, the red section. section. Now is everywhere. And so now people is aware that if you leave your car outside, uh, you may get uh, a head, a human head on top of it, or you're going to have to deal with a, a big black bag with a human remains outside of your house and that didn't happen five years ago so yeah everybody has to deal with that one little background thing here for some people is that particularly in the popular Sounds horrible, isn't it? <laughs> particularly in the popular press in Mexico unlike say in the United States or much of Europe very graphic descriptions very graphic depictions illustrations photographs of dead bodies are common and were before this I mean, the everyday violence against working people, particularly against women, um, you see, you know, that happens in this country, as in many countries, in the popular media, you know, an afternoon paper can come out and you see in full colour bloodied bodies dead on the street. Right? And that's been going on for a very long time. So there's less internal censorship of violence and death here than we get in many other societies. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say. Right? So yes. that's part of the background. The other background is, of course, the long history of the Day of the Dead and the certain embrace of death 
appreciation of it rather than brushing it aside or running away from it. No? Mm -hmm. that, that is a very important part of Mexican culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's fair to say. Dia del Muerte. Yeah. So that's really different. I mean, when you go, when you, when you see family shrines to the dead here, and the way in which they're a mixture often of, you know, very personal objects, like their cigarette packet, or their Coca-Cola can, or their favorite mezcal, alongside extremely conventionally iconographic religious idolatry, and then with family connections as well, right? The extraordinary capacity to bring together the popular, the everyday, the commercial, and the deeply religious in the commemoration of death mm -hmm. uh, is very striking to an outsider like me. Mm -hmm. So. Okay, well. <laughs> I don't know, I mean. I don't want to go into popular culture. I mean, I think this this uh, uh, b the violence we're living now goes beyond uh, popular culture and how we deal with that. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the the, the well. That's what I think. With the, all this notion of um, nation state, it's just crumbled down. It's not working. We are the neighbors of, uh, of the biggest, you know, nation in the world or whatever. I mean, United States. We have a big problem there. But at the same time, when you start start thinking about how many Mexicans are around, first city with the, you know, is Mexico City, and then it comes LA. I mean, LA has almost, I think, seven millions, and then it comes Guadalajara with five, and then it comes Monterrey, and then it comes Chicago with three. You know, so uh, we're talking here about uh, two nations, you know, which are having big issues with, you know, because also Mexicans uh, living abroad, specifically in the United States, they don't they don't like to live in a ghetto. They just they just live whatever. So you have Mexicans everywhere, anywhere, and. Uh, uh, I don't know, economically, the second source of, of income in Mexico is people living abroad sending money here. And then you said, you go and see what's going on in, in the rural areas, and either you go and, 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 and jump into the drug dealing business, or you just have to go away either to the big cities or to the United States. So it's quite difficult. So. When you have to deal with that, in the sense of uh, how journalists have, have to deal with that now, and how the day by day is, is just, just they're knocking in your door, it's very different than just having the nice postcard of uh, the date of the dead, and then you, you know, thinking about your your grandfather or whoever who passed away. I mean, here we're, we're dealing with fear and and real blood. You know, it's like real, it's reality. I realize that. I wasn't wishing to cheapen the experience. I was wanting to say that when you talked about the humor with which you were told, well, you parked outside, you might end up with a <laughs> head on the top bonnet of your car, that's related to the capacity yeah. to turn death into humor and to confront it in certain ways. Okay. That's yeah. okay, we're a little more than halfway through, and I'd love to get on to the other sides of you, if I may that we discussed, but we can go back to this as you wish. And I'm very interested, especially right now, given what, you've been, what you've been saying about sound and image and what you've been implicitly describing about drama, with your doctorate, which you did, uh, as you mentioned, in Spain, or sorry, in Catalonia. Yeah, which is not the same. <laughs> did you write it in Spanish or Catalan? Oh, uh, in Spanish. Right. And this I've not read, but I know is about the work of Samuel Beckett. Yeah. And it relates in particular to sound, as does much of his work in general, on the printed page or the dramatic stage as well. Could you just tell us a wee bit about your thesis? Well, yeah, the thesis is, um, is, a, is, um, is just like a, a, a really small part of what, what I try to do with, with my doctoral studies, which is to understand the uh, electronic work of, that Samuel Beckett did uh, both in radio and television and he actually did also a movie 
And so it was pretty interesting to see how a uh, writer, creator like Samuel Beckett approach the new media at that time, you know, well, he got into radio in 56 and radio was already for a big while ago uh, going on, you know, uh, and then he jumped into TV on the 60s, early 60s, which is, you know, and so how he really was not just uh, uh, wanting to do adaptations of his own work for this media, but he really got the challenge of, of this electronic media and start doing stuff specifically for it. And how he honestly approached and honestly uh, uh, start doing experimentation with it and how his work changed both on the stage, on the screen, on the radio. And that's like the most amazing thing I found. So for Practical purposes, I had to just write about the radio plays of Samuel Beckett uh, because it was already a big thesis. <laughs> but uh, but honestly, the whole project, the uh, electronic project of Samuel Beckett, is pretty interesting for me. How the how the machines, specifically radio at the beginning, uh, how the machines, the, the registered boys, help him to dematerialize his object and Beckett's objects maybe somebody's gonna now you know try to kill me when I say this but I think Beckett's object was the human voice within the human body I mean the actors he wrote something and then he made the actors say it and he was really like a tyrant he was there wanting them to say it as he wanted to be you know even the, the breathing and the rhythm and he was there on top of the actors trying to get whatever he was really imagining when he wrote stuff and that's why he he worked with the same actors for a long time because they knew what he wanted and so when he finally found the sound recording real he realized that he could just get rid of the actors and just work with the sound of the voice and um, he I mean he found that and, you know uh, I mean I don't know I think that's that's the main thing about my findings. And what was it like getting hold of the material? What's the sound archive like of Beckett? Is it all available? Is a lot lost? Where did you get it? Well, the BBC uh, did a new edition of it on 2006 for uh, his centennial. He was born in 1906. And, uh, and they got all the old recordings. And they have them in a double CD sell NPR in America they, national public radio. national public radio with uh, actually national uh, international public radio or something public radio international public radio international they did another set of recordings in 1989 just before Beckett died uh, and that was also as a homage for him and he actually was able to to hear some of those recordings before he died. And so you have those two options for sound, mm. and TV is always in the in the in the television uh, the television that, that he worked with. They have all those all those things in their archives. So TV is not available. TV, it's interesting. So poorly archived. So much taped over. Thought I of hope as they didn't raise it. Radio too. So often. But anyway, and Beckett, for outsiders like me who are not experts, is about economy of verbiage in many ways. I mean, very few words being used, tiny amounts of expression. Huh? Yeah such that words and character almost seem to disappear. Yeah. Waiting for Goddard. You know, breath. Breath was... Isn't there the one little play called Breath where yeah. nobody speaks? Nobody speaks. It's just a big... Um, breath, you know. So, you know, I have an inner truck driver, right? Mm -hmm. My inner truck driver said, says, what the fuck? 
it all depends. I mean, he also dealt with the way of people, the way people thought, you know, the inner, inner, uh, you know, I mean, I found myself sometimes talking the same way. I found a lot of people talking the same way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he just deal with the everyday life with his play, within his plays. I mean, maybe when you go to stage and then you see it and you see it more like an abstract and it has to do with, you know, what people expect when they go to museums, why people, what people is expecting when they go to a play, to theater, to dance. Uh, the thing that you are dislocating something, the human experience and putting into a, a, a different setting, it may, it may make the difference, but really when you listen to some of the uh, Beckett's plays, well, that's what I think, but I mean, don't pay attention to me, I'm just a, you know, a, a Beckett, Beckettophila, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm you crazy about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, when he starts talking about love, or he starts talking about, yeah. uh, about uh, whatever, life, or dead, or the way uh, one of a Molloy relates to his mother, and how his mother was this and that, and, uh, you know, or how he found himself not a being able to move anymore after a stroke. I mean, we're talking about his personajes, his, his characters. It's like so human. And that's the way you are. When you finally find yourself, like you open your eyes, you cannot move. And you don't know what happened the day before. And then you're just thinking, oh my God, what is this? Where am I? Is this my bed? I don't remember anything. Is my mother there, you know, banging on the door? No, she's not. Who is that? Where is this room? I mean, you know, all that could be just a Beckett. A Beckett complete trip. alienation. Yeah. From your body, your life. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. No, I mean... I, I, I hope was, nobody feels offended after I said all this about Beck. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think you've mounted a great case for him. And I actually concur. It's just that, like you, I have the inner truck driver. There's always this other thing when you're talking about the avant-garde or modernism or postmodernism. When you're talking about minimalism, the Beckett kind, where you want to know where the guy on the Harley Davidson or driving the big rig fits in, right? Or the campesino, the field worker, farm worker, peasant. It's in. That's the point. But I think you're right. It's taking everyday experience that can cross absolutely social class yeah. divisions or identities. That's remarkable. And showing the absurdity in everyday life. Yeah. The implausibility of it. But therein lies the great mark of the man. Um, so you did that. Now, and that feeds into asking you about your life as an academic because. You also work at the Universidad de Guadalajara, the public university in Guadalajara, very esteemed research university. Uh, you worked there for a time running the radio station, I think I'm right in saying, yes. the manager of the radio station, and now you're a professor there. Or maybe you, were you a professor at the same time as you, no. So you were a manager of the radio station, you then became a professor. And um, tell us a bit about your academic life. Well, you know, nowadays uh, you you finish a, a, a doctorate and then you become. You a find professor. a car on the bonnet. Sorry, a head on the bonnet of your car yeah. after you're leaving the degree conferral. Exactly. And you move it away from the car, and you drive uh, you drive it yes. with your PhD without the head. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean what I mean is that. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I worked for so long to, in the university that, you know, you, you get this kind of a points where you're able to get support from your own university to, to follow a degree if you want to. Oh, so they helped you with they the gave me They degree. gave me a grant. They gave me oh, a, 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 actually a seven-year grant in order to, to do my degree. I was quite slow, you know, back it took time, but <laughs> to get Minimalism it. is not quick. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> repetition, repetition. And so uh, at the end of it, you have the, of course, the, because, you know, we're talking about a university in Latin America, uh, 
they cannot give the money away. I mean, they want you to go get the degree, come back, and help them. So yep. uh, they offered me uh, to be a professor, and uh, I did. And so I started working in the communication uh, uh, school uh, for journalism, actually, radio and television. And then after I had this this kind of uh, compromises here in Mexico City working on TV, uh, I got uh, so not uh, arranged agreements, arrangements. Yeah, I mean, I, I was invited to to direct this TV station, their international signal Canal 22, and so I got this agreement to be able to be a teacher online with a virtual university, as they call it, Universidad Virtual where uh, I, I teach, you know, so I had two experiences, both in front of a group and now like in a virtual uh, system. Yeah. And tell us a bit about that. What's the difference for you teaching in front of, you know, 20, 50, 150, as opposed to the online version? I'd rather do the personal one, face to face, really, it's different, it's better. <laughs> Really? I think a lot of people feel that way. I've done both, and I've been a student in both as well. I'm a big fan of as much distance between me and the professor and me and the students, depending on my subject position if possible. Well, it all depends maybe on the platform. This platform, the, the university, specifically the University of Virtual I'm working with, is uh, not as fun as having like personal contact with the students. Uh -huh. And so if you're not going to have personal contact with your students online, then uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's the same if it's me or whoever else who's going, doing the, the curse, you know? I mean, whoever can do it. If I'm not going to have uh, real contact, even through the screen or through a, a virtual phone line or through whatever, if it's just going to be, if, if I'm just going to be a helper for the student, and I'm not going to make any input on him, and he's not going to be able to put any input on the class, yeah. then I feel like it's, is there's something missing. Maybe it's a platform. The platform we're working with now doesn't allow for that interaction. And then Does it allow interaction between the students? It's uh, quite a conservative interaction, let's say. Oh. Not real life interaction. because uh, I have to say I've had a wonderful I had a wonderful experience teaching online for a Chilean university, where really after the first few sessions I became irrelevant. I was really irrelevant, and the students, which was a good thing all around, no doubt, the students were fantastic and had such a good time with their interaction. But anyway, so what are you teaching? What sorts of subjects? Well, now I'm, I'm just helping the, the students to go ahead with their uh, thesis, projects, regional projects, you know, to build a, like a, a small gallery in a small town, someplace in Mexico, in the rural areas. I mean, they come with their uh, cultural projects to develop certain areas. Could be like a, like a library, could be like a school, whatever. Yep. All that also uh, help them with their thesis, and uh, that's it. This is what uh, in Spanish is called gestión cultural, and there isn't really a good translation into English. No. It's not administration, it's not Managing. policy. Yeah, but it's more innovative than that. There's not really a proper word. It's in somewhere in between administration, management, policy, infrastructure, but it's somehow the more creative than that. This really is very difficult to find the right word in English. Yeah. And it's very difficult in the context of the United States. I mean, even for the concept to get through, I think. But it's very hard to find. Just, there's no single word in English that does the job of question, question cultural. Yeah. You know. In any event, I think we get what, what you're doing, and that's very valuable work, I think, very important. So, I wonder if in the sort of 10 minutes left to us, we could talk a little bit about Channel 22, Canal 22, because this is something that's available pretty much worldwide to people, yeah. um, mostly, obviously, of, of interest to 
Spanish speakers, but a very interesting project in itself. Could you perhaps share with us a wee bit of that and what your role is in that? Well, can I we don't want any secrets. We just want the nice, clean, sanitised, public version. Okay. Yay! Go, 22! We love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Canal 22 is a culture channel in Mexico National. Uh, it's run by the federal government through the Ministry of Education and uh, kind of a, a small branch of a, this uh, cultural minister, which is Conaculta. Uh, uh, and so it was the only channel of his, of, of, his, uh, of this kind in Mexico. It's cultural, uh, broadcast stuff about arts and culture, literature, opera, rock, uh, folk, dance, music, whatever. And uh, has been in Mexico, running in Mexico since uh, 18, 19 years ago. It was created by a group of intellectuals that they asked for the president to have a channel for their own. And so since eight years ago, they opened a branch for international, and we started in the United States. We've been there for eight years. We have almost a million and a half sus house subscribers, which may be almost like three million of potential... Oh, could be more. Potential viewers, maybe five, five yeah. million. We yeah. don't know. Yeah. And so since this last year, we're broadcasting also on the internet. Only in the last year. That's Only wonderful. last year. That's wonderful. For free. In the whole world. But, but outside the United States on the internet, right? In the United States, we're just it's on, on cable and pay satellite. TV. Yeah. But in other countries, it's free, on yeah. the available on the internet. And yeah. I should say, I watched the coverage of Canal 22. I was in Guadalajara in a lonely hotel room, in a bar with no beer, because of the ley seca, the dry law that means that you're not allowed to get a fucking drink in Mexico through the whole weekend of the election. And I watched the coverage on my computer of Channel 22, and I really enjoyed it. It was very, very good, the election night. Yeah, I mean, you can see the major concerts in uh, Bellas Artes, which is the main theater here in town, from opera to whatever's in town. Or, Bellas Artes is like Beaux-Arts. Yeah, and uh, uh, it would be like the Lincoln Center of yeah. uh, Mexico City, right. of Mexico. It's a major venue for arts and culture. Or, I mean, we usually cover all of all the, the main cultural festivals in Mexico, like the Cervantino, which has been 38 years already, and it's in Guanajuato, and every biggest, I mean, the biggest companies, the best companies, and every kind of, a, you know, dance, theater, music, they right. go there. And there's also, they choose a country each year. Yeah, each to, year. To feature. Exactly. So we really go nice. there, we take all our uh, mobile units, and we record, and then we broadcast. We do the same in Feria Internacional del Libro, the International Book Fair in Guadalajara. Which we, I've also been to, which is fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, As is the Cervantino in Guanajuato. Yeah. So we do the best festivals in Mexico, and then we broadcast that, and take it into our, um, you know, our TV content. So that's the kind of well, things you can see. Now, for Mexican viewers, we have special programming like the best international cinema. You will see it in Canal 22. In Canal 22 International, which is the branch that goes a, a, a far away, outside of the country, you see Mexican cinema. Either the classic, which is also a big hit, all the golden age cinema. Epoca de Oro, Epoca de Oro with, uh, you know, Pedro Infante. Cantinflas, Tinta, and all that. Federal Armendaris. Exactly. And also we have young uh, directors, you know, from the 19s, 2000s, and now. So for abroad, we, yeah. we, we broadcast uh, Mexican cinema. For Mexicans in Mexico, we broadcast... Uh, international. International, the best international Wow. Cinema. I guess that's a, an obvious thing to do, but brilliant. I really like it. I think that's a great idea. Okay. 
So that's it. The new grand syntagma. And what's your role in Canal 22's Channel 22? Well, I'm the head of, a, of the international signal on the internet. Yeah. So we we decide what's going to be programmed, what's going to be produced, what's, uh, which kind of deals we need to do with uh, the distributors in the States. If we're going to start going to South America, whatever. I mean, you know, just... Just a few small things like that. Yeah, <laughs> engineers, dealing with engineers and... Men in suits. Large men in suits. Yes. With slick back hair and combs in their back pockets. Yeah. Telling you what to think and do. Yes, but never happens. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> So, to finish off, I wonder if you could meditate for a moment on the question of what is the future of, say, television and radio in the context of the internet, as you experience it as an artist, as an intellectual, a teacher, an executive. Because it's clear that you're moving across all these plataformas, no? Yeah. So, if you were in charge of Canal Ventilos, would you say scrap the TV signal, save the money, put it all online? Forget no. about satellite, forget about cable? No. Actually, I will say, when is going to be the, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, cut of the analog signal? And I will say, give me more analog signals until the very, very, very end. And when, when, I mean, when you think in a, in a country like Mexico, how many, how many people really have uh, access to internet and computers? I mean, whoever's uh, world trending topic doesn't have anything to do with having the least, the least, I mean, even if you have a really bad uh, program in terms of rating, like the other day they told me that the program had like 3,000 viewers. Uh, for the whole thing, you yeah. know, and uh, and you think that Bellas Artes we're talking about has only space for 1300. It would be like if it was two Bellas Artes yeah. filled that, people fantastic. watching your program. Yep. If you have 10,000 people, like Auditorio Nacional, which is a big venue here in Mexico City, watching your single, if you have more than that, it's like two Estadios Aztecas. I mean, just think about it. And so, even though the people that love the internet love numbers and love that, I really think the penetration of TV I will go for radio. I will ask the government to give me radio, and I will ask the government to give me analog stations until they don't work anymore, you know? And I will do that. Well, they'll always work. There'll always be analog stations in radio, I suspect. I think the question is, unfortunately, what happens if we... Well, Mexico is moving to an all-digital television world in the next three or four years. Well, yeah, Calamitos has to give up his, uh, give back his uh, analog, analog signal. signal in 2014. Right. Yeah. You know, and this is... In and a country, the states already happened. Absolutely. In a country with such incredibly intense and widespread poverty, this is an amazing thing to be doing, I have to say. Yeah. To deny the poor. Like now, like the government just announced that cannabis is in the 56% of the country because we got... Uh, they gave uh, Canavantidos a bunch of signals, but they're just uh, digital terrestrial. Well, nobody yet, not even the States, not even the United States that use digital terrestrial. They tend to see TV through cable. They pay for TV. The people that's watching TV, they're paying for TV. And so, what are we going to do with those TV stations? We need to inform people that there's free quality TV for them. You know, so no, I'm, I, I like internet because of uh, the fact that you can get it anywhere, but you just need to know how small of a, of a spectrum it yeah. covers. No, and the utopia of it just doesn't understand the realities of poverty and class politics at all. Now, Luz Maria Sanchez, I wonder if you could just conclude by telling people where they can find some of your work online, <laughs> having just announced that the whole project of the internet is, or well, having my just announced, completely compromised. 
by money and class access. Uh, we mentioned already uh, diaspora uh, 2487.org. LuzMariaSanchez.com, which is for simple. Which is L-U-Z-M-A-R-I-A-S-A-N-C-H-E-Z. Yeah, there's a project that I did with some people in uh, Spain, in the Basque country, called Soy Numapa, S-O-Y-N-I-M-A-P-A.net, which is a sound... Scape of a vast country, yeah. interactive, and then I had a trangleproject.net, uh, which was like a non-profit art space for uh, contemporary art that I run in Texas, and then is a enlinea.canal22.org.mx, which is where you can see the channel there. Right. That's it. Well, Luz, thank you so much for the time you've given to us. It's You're been welcome. wonderful talking to you as always. You're welcome. And I hope that you'll come back to the pod and share with us some of your new and comfortable coming adventures. Okay, I'll be happy to do that.